play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. And this is Your Last Meal, a podcast about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, we explore the last meal of one of my favorite authors. Hello. Hey, is this Mary? Yes, it is. We have an interview. Yay. 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 <laughs> I'm so excited to be chatting <laughs> with you. It's a good one, too. Mary Roach writes brilliant nonfiction books about science, and she has a special gift for making science writing appealing to everyone by humanizing and humorizing topics like war, the human digestive system, and corpses. I feel like everybody has this if you're a reader. There is a book in your life that you recommend to everyone, a book that you think about for years and you talk about at every dinner party. And for me, that's Mary's book, Stiff. It's a book about what happens when you donate your body to science. A topic I never thought I would be interested in until I read it in Mary's words. And because Mary writes about science and Your Last Meal is about food, I found a guest who straddles both topics. Tom Ryan is a flavor scientist. He is the actual carbon human who invented stuffed crust pizza for Pizza Hut. And... I was recruited to go to a small company in Oak Brook, Illinois called McDonald's. And um, McFlurry's, the dollar menu, McGriddles was probably my biggest one there. And we'll talk with oyster expert and author Rowan Jacobson about the world's most perfect food. Is there any truth to oysters being an aphrodisiac? The scientific answer is none. And the real answer is yes, absolutely. Mary does massive amounts of research for all of her books, and she often inserts herself into interesting, crazy, gross, stinky, funny situations, all for the sake of storytelling. Could you talk about some of the studies that you and your husband have been involved in? <laughs> sure. <laughs> most, most, most notably, I guess, would be a study in Bonk. And Bonk is a book about sexual physiology, and I was bringing sexuality into the lab, which is a delightfully awkward proposition. And, and one of the things I wanted to get out was, well, what was that like for um, to bring uh, couples into the laboratory to have sex and to document things that were happening in the body throughout the sexual response cycle? So what is that like, that awkward scenario? So I ended up volunteering myself and my husband for a study, it was a, it's a long story, but anyway, it was, it was a very awkward evening because it was an ultrasound project. So there's the researcher who's holding the wand, ultrasound wand to my belly. Obviously, my husband is behind me. And it was, you know, like it was, didn't even really feel like sex. It just felt more like sort of an awkward medical procedure that you're going <laughs> to get through. <laughs> and uh, well, it was more awkward, obviously, for him. The burden of performance was on him. Myself, I was taking notes through it all. And what? I, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I'm doing my research. And, but, but while it was happening, I was like, this is going to be so fun to write up. I mean, the, the more awkward or unpleasant something is, the more fun it is for people to read. Can you set the scene a little? Because I'm imagining, like, bright fluorescent lights, this researcher wearing the white lab coat, and you guys on yep. one of those, like, cold metal tables. 
Uh, yeah, pretty much. It was this, this guy, in the, it was in the, the imaging department at a hospital in London. It was after hours. The door was locked, so nobody could come in. Um, and, but it was funny. He had kind of tried to make it a little more romantic. Like he put <laughs> sheets on the table and kind of folded them down in an inviting way. And he, um, my husband had kind of joked, well, you know, where's the soft lighting and the romantic music? And, and Dr. Same was Dr. Deng. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry. And then he stopped <laughs> for a moment and he goes, oh, wait, on my laptop, I have the soundtrack to Les Mis. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh my. No, that's okay. That's really okay. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, and he, if you're going to have sex in front of a stranger in a lab coat, I would recommend Dr. Deng because he was quite neutral, just kind of attending to the different dials and knobs on the ultrasound machine and, and just very, very, very matter-of-fact. And were you guys totally naked? We were wearing those dorky little hospital johnnies that they give you. Like the you know, little... gown that's open in the back? Mm-hmm. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I had a pair of like ratty socks on. It was oh. kind of cold in there. Not an, not an attractive, alluring lingerie ensemble. It's very fitting that Mary and I discuss sex because the food that she chose for her last meal is one that ends up on every culinary aphrodisiac list. Okay, let's talk about food now. So what would your last meal be? Okay, well, I have a, I have a unique perspective on this because of stiff. Um, I happen to learn that if you eat proteins, they're almost completely absorbed and you don't have any leftover material, any roughage or fiber that you have to dispose of. Um, and one thing I also, another thing I learned in stiff is that when you die, the anal sphincter relaxes and the contents would come out. And so I would prefer to have a meal that is like high in, high protein, low residue, as they say, so, um, so that I, you know, I'm, I'm a tidy corpse. I'd, love to be a, I'd, I'd rather not eat <laughs> one of those um, messy corpses. So, uh, and that would enable me to eat some of my favorite foods, uh, sashimi, white tuna sashimi, oysters, raw oysters, fresh, raw, Miyagi's or Kumamoto's, the smaller ones. I don't like the big giant ones where you could see the different organs moving around. Uh, maybe a, starting out with a soft-boiled egg with sea salt. And all of that would be completely absorbed. So you're not going to have a salad because there's a lot of uh, roughage that's going to have to come out when you die. So do you want to be a clean corpse because you want to be considerate or because of some sort of post-death embarrassment that people would be grossed out by you? Yeah, exactly. I don't want to gross anyone out. I don't want any, any stranger to have to wipe my butt. <laughs> wow. Just, you know. So polite. Consider it. I know. <laughs> if you're somebody who's kept a journal or a diary, you may feel the same way that I do, that I am so worried about somebody finding my journals and diaries after I die. And I feel like this is the next level version of that, being embarrassed when somebody finds your dirty, stinky corpse after you die. And I realized after speaking with Mary that the two brainiac science-minded people that I've had on the podcast, Mary Roach and Neil deGrasse Tyson, both factored in circumstances to their last meal, not just the flavors and the nostalgia associated with the food. So Neil deGrasse Tyson chose lobster because he said it's a food that takes a long time to eat. You have to crack open all of the shells, and he wanted to stall his death. And Mary Roach chose foods that would keep her corpse clean. Who is this woman? <laughs> I love her. Uh, and one way to keep your corpse clean is to eat raw oysters on the half shell. What would you garnish yours with? How do you like to eat your raw oysters? Just lemon. Just 
lemon. Yeah, just to squeeze a lemon. I'm, or, or I, I, because I love the, that briny sip of ocean that you get with the oyster. And if you put on that, what is it, mignonette or whatever, the little sauce with the yeah, shallots in it. Yeah, it kind of it kind of messes with the purity of the oyster ocean experience. Do you have a favorite place to eat oysters? Mm, yeah, I love Hog Island, which is they're locally grown up on Tomales Bay, about an hour north of where I live, and you can sit out on the bay where the oysters are farmed and eat them in the sun, sitting there. So that's that's a nice place to have oysters. Hog Island Oyster Company is in Marin County on the Northern California coast. It's about an hour north of San Francisco. And I agree, eating oysters in the sunshine on the beach where they are grown is the absolute best way to eat oysters. And when you eat them plain, you know, without lemon or cocktail sauce or mignonette, you can really start to taste the difference between the different varieties of oysters. Some are sweet, some have this stronger mineral quality, some are more briny, some are mild. And the reason that I'm talking so much about oysters and I'm so excited about them is because Mary cracked into my last meal, something that I've never mentioned on the program before. There it is, raw oysters. That would be my choice for my last meal. And I would have them with no accoutrement on the beach. I would shuck them myself and have them with a dry, probably Sauvignon Blanc, even though I'm not a big wine person, but that tends to go really well with oysters. So I'm not the only one, and Mary's not the only one, who's going to wax poetic about oysters today. I called up Rowan Jacobson. He's written two very comprehensive books about oysters, including The Essential Oyster. And he agrees that Hog Island oysters are fantastic. That's been a famous oyster growing area for a century. Hog Islands are a Pacific oyster, and they have a really fruity, salty taste to them. And they tend to have these gorgeous shells also because of the way they're grown. And you can really see the minerality in the shells. You see all these purples and pinks and white swirls, kind of. They're super elegant, sort of very Japanese-style oysters. And there's this really great word that you should know called terroir, which, of course, is a French word and probably really pronounced terroir. But us dumb Americans say terroir. And this refers to a food tasting different depending on where it's grown. This word is often used when talking about wine because where the grapes are grown influence how they taste based on the soil, the climate and the topography. So the same is definitely true with oysters. Oysters taste different depending on where they're grown around the country. And that has to do with their terroir. Why do you think oysters are so divisive? I feel like people, including me and you, love them and are obsessed with them and can't get enough, or people just hate them and think they're disgusting. This is something I've definitely thought about through the years because, um, yeah, people are either on board or they're not. And if they're not, your odds of getting them on board are really low. <laughs> so um, I, it, it's mostly it's the, um, the slime factor. It's a texture thing that just works for some people and doesn't work for others. I want to talk about the fact that it's so unique that we are eating this whole animal and it's still alive. I forget that sometimes. Can you talk about that? What are we eating when we're eating an oyster? You are eating a whole animal, every organ, every piece of it. And yes, it's still alive. You know, people make a big deal about that. But I always like to also add that when we eat our oysters, they tend to be really cold. They've been stored on ice. And when oysters get cold, they go into hibernation, basically like suspended animation. So 
they're alive, but they're definitely not conscious. I mean, they're never conscious anyway. They have their own brain, but they have no clue what's happening. So they don't have a brain, but they do have a heart. And when you bite into one, it doesn't seem to be detectable in the way that you would be able to detect a heart or other organs of another bigger animal that you would eat. What does an oyster have inside? And and is it true that I read that it has, is it salt water for blood? Yeah, basically the salt water is their circulatory system. They're very simple. Yeah, the, the heart is about the size of a little pencil eraser or something. It's tiny. When you open up an oyster, you really see three main parts. Uh, the belly is the sort of the round, puffy part. And then you'll see a little like disc that's much more ivory colored. And that's the muscle that they use to attach their shells and, and to keep their shell closed. And that's what you cut when you open the oyster. And then the third part is the gill, which is this little fan along the outer edge of the oyster, which is what they use to filter their food. I think eating raw oysters is probably the most savage culinary experience. So you take an oyster, it's still alive, you stab it with a knife, you crank it open, pry it out of the shell with a knife, tilt your head back with glee, and then just slide it down your gullet and eat it completely whole while it's still alive. And then you say, hmm, and you probably have some more. But we do it in the name of taste. The taste and texture of an oyster is unlike any other food. It is absolutely delicious. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, I ask this B-I-Q. I invented that myself. Very important question. Who decided to put cocktail sauce on a freaking oyster? Stick around. Just a ferry ride away from Seattle is the Kitsap Peninsula, a land of gorgeous forests, sparkling water for kayaking and stand-up paddleboarding, and adorable seaside towns with locally-owned boutiques and family-owned restaurants. I have done so many day trips to the Kitsap Peninsula, wine tasting on Bainbridge Island, a girl's trip to Paul's Bow, ice cream and architecture in Port Gamble, watching the seals play from the beach in Port Orchard, and I still haven't seen it all. If you're like me and like off-the-beaten-path places where the locals vacation, you are going to love the Kitsap Peninsula. And this month, we're talking about Bremerton and Silverdale. So Bremerton is known as a naval town, and there are museums if you're into the big ships. But the restaurant scene has been really growing over the past several years. Grab a bowl of clam chowder or homemade lumpia at Bremerton's veteran-owned Axe and Arrow. And visit a land and gardens to see meticulously trimmed bonsai and a tree that has been around since 300 BC. Plan your visit. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal. You can also find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. A cold, briny, just plucked from the beach oyster is one of the world's most perfect foods. I think so. Mary Roach thinks so. And oyster scholar and author Rowan Jacobson thinks so. What do you think is the best way to dress an oyster or to not dress it? Yeah, not, don't dress it. Uh, just straight up. If it's a really good oyster, it doesn't eat anything. If it's like a pretty good oyster, then you can hit it with a, just a little squeeze of lime, I think. My favorite um, way to dress East Coast oysters, which have a, a very sort of briny beach flavor, is just with cracked pepper, a little grinding of cracked pepper. Because they're really salty, so you put a little cracked pepper. It's almost like a peppery potato chip. 
who decided to put cocktail sauce on a freaking oyster? Because, you know, once you start eating them and you can really taste their real flavor, it just seems like such a waste of an oyster because you can't taste it anymore. Exactly. And that's what I say in my book. Like cocktail sauce tastes great on a saltine cracker. You don't need the oyster in there. You can't taste anything with the cocktail sauce. But I, it was clearly somebody who wanted to cover up the taste of the oyster, either because they didn't like oysters or because they were serving some oysters that were seriously subpar. Let's talk about the history of people eating oysters, because it's definitely one of those foods that it's hard to open. You know, it takes some practice to be able to shuck. Uh, If you didn't know what an oyster was and you were at the beach, you'd probably just think it was another rock or a shell. So who were the people that we know of who were the first to eat oysters and when did they become popular? They've always been popular. I mean, since before recorded history, we actually have this archaeological evidence from the coast of South Africa that dates back to 164,000 years ago, which is pretty much when people were first becoming people. And it's a cave right on the coast. And what's in the cave is a bunch of shells and stone blades from knives and ochre, which is used for marking on walls or for marking on bodies. So basically we have like this proto oyster bar from 164,000 years ago. So we know that people were picking shellfish off the coast and eating them right from the very beginning. And they've been popular ever since. So in more modern society, even, you know, hundreds or thousands of years ago, was it was it always a luxury item? Was it something the poor would eat? I mean, recently I did an interview with someone where I learned that, you know, lobster used to be something that they fed to prisoners. Right. Oysters, they have this weird sort of dual identity of white tablecloth food and poor food. So in New York, that you know in fancy restaurants you get served oysters with a lot of pomp and circumstance but at the same time you could go to the underground uh bars in the 1800s and eat oysters for a penny a piece it was just what you did with your beer they're, they're kind of like the original bar snack because they're salty and they make you order more beer so and that's been true going back to roman times they still kind of had that dual nature let's talk about the aphrodisiac factor How did oysters end up on this list? Is there any truth to oysters being an aphrodisiac? The the scientific answer is none. And the real answer is yes, absolutely. That reputation also dates back to Roman times. And nobody's ever found any evidence like for why a particular nutrient or chemical would be an aphrodisiac in anything. But oysters have always had that reputation. And it has a lot more to do with the mindset people are in when they're eating oysters. I've actually seen it all the time. Like you said, oysters are this raw animal that you're eating live. So they immediately put us into this sort of like primeval state of mind. And and people get very excited about it. It's this primal experience. And once that primal experience is started, plus you're usually drinking something delicious at the same time, who knows where the evening's going to go from there. That's interesting. Now that you say that, I have a lot of very strong oyster memories. They're expensive, so you don't have this unlimited amount. So you kind of pay more attention maybe when they come and you really taste it and like savor it. But also I feel like good things have happened in my life over oysters where like I don't necessarily remember other meals I had when good things happen. Exactly. Yeah, No. they they just raise the caliber of the evening instantly. Like they they put everybody on high alert um, just because of the nature of the experience. So then um, you tend to have more interesting evenings. Just talking to Mary about oysters was an aphrodisiac for me. 
I was reading on your website about your interests and that you love Scrabble and thrift stores and mangoes. And I was like, wow, if I was online dating and you came up, I would totally click on you. Uh, the, <laughs> the one thing that I wanted to ask you about was overseas supermarkets because they are so fun to go yeah. to. Is there a country in particular that, you know, you have a memory of a really good supermarket or your favorite country to eat in? Well, I have, my husband and I have this weird collection of foods with, <laughs> I don't know even how to explain this, but I'm going to tell you, one of the one of them in the collection, it's a Swedish candy bar called Plop, okay? There's also a kind of Twinkie-like item from somewhere in South America called Colon, C-O-L-L-O-N. I see what you're doing there. There's a Japanese coffee that is BM brand, um, and another canned coffee that's Mr. Brown. (laughs) So we have this collection of kind of potty humor food items. Oh, there's also a little hotel. This isn't food. It's a hotel shampoo packet, but it says, it's from China, and it says sham space poo. (laughs) They also have that drink called cow piss. They do. Yes, they do. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a dishwashing detergent in Iran that someone brought back for me, and it's called Barf. <laughs> That's excellent. Is this yeah. a is this something you have displayed in your house? Yes, it's displayed in on a shelf in the bathroom. Oh, it's in the bathroom. So the only time maybe you it's have in food in the bathroom. Yes, right. Yes, exactly. And and sometimes people just glance at it and they don't read the labels and they think why why do these people have food items stored in their bathroom? <laughs> Well, I hope after this podcast that people will send you these things now when they hear about them or when they see them when they're traveling. I sure hope so. This is by far the most fecal episode of Your Last Meal ever because we've never talked about feces at all in any form. Uh, But as someone who grew up in a family who loved talking about bathroom activities at the dinner table, I am totally comfortable with this. And I'm so sorry if you're not. But uh, me and Mary Roach, you know, food, clean corpses bathroom talk would you guys be mad if we just talked about one more gross thing so there's a lot of gross in a lot of your books because things in the human body are gross i mean going from the fecal transplants in um gulp to you know the cadavers in stiff is there anything that was too gross for you when you were doing research and in person and interviewing people that was a little too much for you the only experience i've ever had where i couldn't take it and i had to leave wasn't in, was not in fact for book research. I am friends with the medical examiner for the city of Oakland, and she takes great delight in trying to gross me out. And I think of myself as someone who isn't easily grossed out. And one time she said, "You should come down. We have some really interesting cases." And these were um, two bodies that had been found after a considerable length of time in warm weather, and. That no, I, I lasted about 30 seconds after the point where she cut the bodies open, as they do in an autopsy, and left the room gagging. So, yeah, there is a point at which even Mary Roach can't hack it. When we come back, I promise you, no more gross things. Instead, we will talk with the man, the myth, the legend, the guy who invented some of the most iconic fast foods of all time. If 
you like listening to your last meal, you might like watching my new TV show, The Nosh with Rachel Bell. We just wrapped up season one, so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at CascadePBS.org. In episode one, I convince an East Coast skeptic that Seattle now has fantastic bagels. And in the season finale, we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of Seattle. Episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at CascadePBS.org or find a link in the show notes. Stuffed crust pizza does not grow on trees. Somebody actually had to invent it. And that man is Tom Ryan, CEO and founder of the Smashburger chain and Tom's Urban Restaurants. I got into this curriculum called food science, which I was shocked and amazed at the technical depth of scientific thinking behind mostly packaged good foods that we take for granted every day. So I have a master's degree in lipid toxicology, if you will. And then I, I kind of went on to get a PhD in flavor and fragrance chemistry, which was insightful curriculum on how to create either great flavors or how to prevent bad ones. Tom has done R&D and concept development for big chains like McDonald's, Long John Silver's, Quiznos, and Pizza Hut. Let's start with the stuffed crust pizza. Uh, where did the inspiration come from? And did you get to just come up with this yourself? Was this like an idea that came to you in the shower? Or do you have like a big team at a board room table? No, it doesn't. It never works the way people think it works, which is like some aha moment. You know, it's it, it's, a, it's a different process. So all these great things that I had the ability to manage and work on and develop all came from a business need within the brand. And in hindsight, they look like great product innovations, but they were really driven, almost all of them, were driven to accomplish some void in any given brand's portfolio or some emerging opportunity that we saw in the marketplace that needed to be addressed. So let's talk about stuffed crust. In the days when stuffed crust was invented, Pizza Hut was known for two things, pan pizza and thin pizza. And they're not too thick, not too thin. What we call traditional pizza was a pretty weak offering. And all the growth in the marketplace was coming from places like Papa John's and Domino's and Little Caesars. And guess what? Their crust type wasn't pan or thin pizza. It was this traditional style pizza. And the market was already saturated. So the dilemma was, how do you get into this growth part of the business with something as basic as traditional pizza dough? and make it differentiated enough to drive new interest, new excitement? How do you romance the familiarity of a traditional pizza? What I knew in my heart of hearts was two things. One, that the biggest value driver in pizza was the amount of cheese on the pizza. It was really cheesy, it was a great pizza. If it wasn't, it wasn't something I would buy twice. And that the most undervalued part of the pizza was the crust. Matter of fact, most pizza crusts either don't get eaten or do get eaten, but usually by somebody's dog. It's called the pizza bell, and they toss it to their dog. And so the moment of brilliance was, what if we took the most valuable part of a pizza cheese and figured out how to integrate it into the most undervalued part of the pizza, the crust, and end up with something really, really added value, differentiated, that changed the frame just enough for people to say, that's something I would be interested in. But it was that simple-minded architecture of taking a traditional pizza and putting cheese in the crust that made us break through. And it broke through so hard that in its first full year of revenue, it did a billion and a half dollars in sales. 
on a company whose base sales were in and around $5 billion at the time. Even in a market totally saturated with traditional pizza, finding this innovative architectural hook that was really added value to consumers generated a tremendous amount of growth in the industry. And that's the background story of how stuffed crust pizza came to be. What I learned from talking to Tom is that food is a little bit of an afterthought. It is mostly a business decision. Creating new dishes is all about making money by tapping into the culinary psychology of Americans. What have you learned about Americans doing all of this research that leads to creating these products? I mean, you talked about, you know, what people want in a pizza and what they don't want. Are there some themes that you found just about what Americans like? Yes. Burgers are still America's favorite food. Pizza's a very close second. Tacos are right there in third. And so that's easy to get your arms around. And those numbers don't change very much over time. I think the biggest thing I've learned over the course of my career is this notion of romancing something that's familiar, that Americans aren't really interested in adopting something totally new. They resonate more around having something that is primarily mostly understood and then finding a nuance that's really important to them that adds value. One of our most popular dishes at Tom's Urban is we do an Indian vindaloo taco. And it's like it's really easy for people to get their arms around because they know what a taco is. They know what to expect when it shows up. They know how to eat it with their hands. But this whole Indian vindaloo thing, chicken taco, is something that makes them kind of go, wow, this is a taco I've never thought about before. And I kind of I think I like Indian food. I may already know I like Indian food, but it's a cheap ticket to find out in an architecture that's very comfortable. I think that's where the business opportunity are with the American market. Yeah, it seems like there's three components when you're talking about fast food in general. So you're looking at the innovation, the marketing, what's going to work, and then the actual chemistry of what you're creating. I want to focus on the chemistry. The thing that I always think of as someone who's not in your industry when I think of food science is chips. So I lived in Japan six or seven years ago, and they just really do crazy things with chips. I feel like we've just started doing this here in America where you can have biscuits and gravy flavored Lay's. Uh, but like they would do every flavor and you're like, how does this chip taste like clam chowder? That's crazy. How does it? How do you make flavors like that? So that industry is really interesting. It, it, it is, um, it's understanding the nascent development of those flavors in their natural habitat, like what makes clam chowder clam chowder, what are the dominant flavors in there and what drive what are the what are the raw material that causes them and then what is the processing that drives them? And then through what I would call generally modern chemistry, you can either create those same flavors or parts of them naturally and then build them on top of each other. And quite and quite frankly, in a lot of cases, you can build them synthetically. And the trend, you know, back in the early days of food science was that synthetics were okay. And now there's this big move back to as much natural as possible. That requires a lot more culinary thinking than just organic and biochemistry. So you basically tear apart the profile of clam chowder, clam flavor. And then there's these background notes of subtle onion, garlic, and potato that generally drives the rest of it. Mix that with salt, compound that, figure out how to spray dry it or other ways to process it into a topical and apply it to whatever vehicle you want, whether it's a chip or a cracker or whatever. 
And that's how you do it. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's simple in hindsight. It takes a lot of technology to do that. But that's, quite frankly, how it's done. I am not generally one for chemical-coated foods, but I have to admit, I am so amazed when you taste a chip and it actually does taste like clam chowder or it tastes like tandoori chicken. I am so in on this gimmick. I will eat chemical chips all day long. That was Mary Roach's last meal. Check out Mary's latest book. It's called Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War. Mary Roach also wrote Gulp, Spook, Bonk. And just when you thought she could only do one name titles, Packing for Mars, you can find all of her work at maryroach.net. Thanks to Rowan Jacobson, author of The Essential Oyster, and Tom Ryan, CEO and founder of Smashburger and Tom's Urban Restaurants. Theme music by Prom Queen. And uh, you can find her music at promqueenmusic.com. This episode was produced by Aaron Mason and me. And pretty, pretty please, if you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast. And more importantly, leave a review. I know us podcasters are constantly saying the same thing, kind of like your mother telling you to put on a jacket. But you don't have to wear a jacket to leave a review for your last meal. But it helps the podcast get out to the masses, which keeps us on the air. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. just licked the microphone on accident and oh, I no. and I and I want to turn back time cuz that was so gross I didn't even <laughs>